0: 12, enforced, even in times of dire panic, to issue clearinghouse certificates, but had always paid cash. Norfolk has grown so fast and has so rapidly replaced the old with the new, that the visitor must keep his eyes open if he would not miss entirely such lovely souvenirs of an earlier and easier life, as still remain. Who would imagine, seeing it today, that busy Grandy Street had ever been a street of fine residences, yet a very few years have passed since the old noon. Tayswell, Dixon and Taylor residences surrendered to advancing commerce and gave place to stores and office buildings the two last mentioned having been replaced by the Dixon building and the Taylor building, erected less than fifteen years ago. Freemason Street is the highway which, more than any other, tells of olden times, for though the downtown end of this lovely old thoroughfare has lapsed into decay, many beautiful mansions, dating from long ago are to be seen a few blocks out from the busier portion of the city. Among these should be mentioned the Whittle House, the H.N. Castle House, and particularly the exquisite ivy-covered residence of Mr. Barton Myers, at the corner of Bank Street. The city of Norfolk ought, I think, to attempt to acquire this house and preserve it using it perhaps as a memorial museum to contain historical relics to show what has been, in Norfolk as against what island and to preach a silent sermon on the highest state of beauty from which a fine old city may fall, in the name of progress and commercial growth, to the credit of Norfolk be it said that Old Street Paul's church, with its picturesque churchyard and tombs, is excellently cared for and properly valued as a pre-revolutionary relic, the church was built in 1730, and was struck by a British cannonball when Lord Dunmore bombarded the place in 1776, Baedeker tells me, however, that the cannonball now resting in the indentation in the wall of the church is, not the original. When I say that Street Paul's is properly valued I mean that many citizens told my companion and me to be sure to visit. I observe, however and I take it as a sign of the times in Norfolk that an extensive, well-printed and much-illustrated book on Norfolk, issued by the Chamber of Commerce, contains pictures of banks, docks, breweries, mills, office buildings, truck farms, peanut farms, battleships, clubhouses, hotels, hospitals, factories, and innumerable new residences, but no picture of the church, or of the lovely old homes of Freemason Street, nor do I find in the booklet any mention of the history of the city or the surrounding region although that region includes places of the greatest beauty and interest, among them the glorious old manor houses of the James River, the ancient and charming town of Williamsburg, second capital of the Virginia colony, and seat of William and Mary College, the oldest college in the United States excepting Harvard, Yorktown, Waterloo of the Revolution, many important battlefields of the Civil War, Hampton Institute, the famous Negro Industrial School at Hampton, nearby, the lovely stretch of water on which the Monitor met the Merrimack, the site of the first English settlement in America at Jamestown, and, for mystery and desolation, the dismal swamp with Lake Drummond at its heart. But then, I suppose it is natural that the Chamber of Commerce mind should thrust aside such things in favor of the mighty, Goober, which is a thing of today, a thing for which Norfolk is said to be the greatest of all markets, for is not history dead, and is not the man who made a fortune out of a device for shelling peanuts without causing the nuts to drop into, still living, the Merrimack, originally a Federal vessel of wooden construction, was sunk by the Union forces when they abandoned Norfolk, a Confederate captain. John M. Brooke, raised her, equipped her with a ram, and covered her with boilerplate and railroad rails. She is called the first ironclad. While she was being reconstructed John Ericsson was building his Monitor in New York. The turret was first used on this vessel. It is worth noting that at the time of the engagement between these two ships the Monitor was not the property of the federal government, but belonged to C.S. Bushnell, of New Haven, who built her at his own expense. In spite of the opposition of the Navy Department of that day, the government paid for her long after the fight. It should also be noted that the Merrimack did not fight under that name, but as a Confederate ship had been retrous in Virginia, the patriotic action of Mr. Bushnell is recalled by the fact that, only recently, Mr. Godfrey L. Cabot, of Boston, has agreed to furnish funds to build the torpedo plane designed by Admiral Fiske as a weapon wherewith to attack the German fleet within its defenses at Kiel and yet the modernness on which Norfolk so evidently prides herself is not something to be lightly valued. Fine schools, fine churches and miles of pleasant, recently built homes are things for any American city to rejoice in. Therefore Norfolk rejoices in Gantt, her chief modern residence district, which is penetrated by arms of the Elizabeth River, so that many of the houses in this part of the city look out upon pretty lagoons, dotted over with all manner of pleasure craft, less than twenty years ago. The whole of what is now Ghent was a farm, and there are other suburban settlements, such as Edgewater, Larchmont, Winona and Lochhaven, out in the direction of Hampton Roads, which have grown up in the last six or eight years. The Country Club of Norfolk, with a very pleasing clubhouse on the water, and an 18-hole golf course, is at Haven, and the new naval bases, I believe, to be located somewhat farther out, on the site of the Jamestown Exposition. Norfolk is well provided with nearby seaside recreation places, of which probably the most attractive is Virginia Beach. Facing the ocean, ocean view, so-called, is on Chesapeake Bay. And there are summer cottage colonies at Willoughby Spin and Cape Henry. On the bay side of Cape Henry is Lindhofen Inlet connecting Lindhofen Bay and River with Chesapeake Bay. From Lindhofen Bay come the famous oysters of that name, now to be had in most of the large cities of the east but which seemed to me to taste a little better at the Virginia Club, in Norfolk. The oysters ever tasted anywhere. Perhaps that was because they were real Lindhoffens. Just as the Virginia Club's Smithfield ham is real Smithfield ham from the little town of Smithfield, Virginia, a few miles distant, on the bank of the Lindhoffen River is situated the old donation farm with a ruined church, and an ancient dwelling house which was used as the first courthouse in Princess and County, and not far distant from this place's which duck point, where Grace Sherwood, after having been three times tried, and finally convicted as a witch, was thrown into the river. The several waterside places I have mentioned are more or less local in character, but there is nothing local about Fortress Monroe, on Old Point Comfort, just across Hampton Roads, which has for many years been one of the most beautiful and highly individualized idling places on the Atlantic coast, the old moat fortress. The interior of which is more like some lovely garden of the last century than a military post, remains an important coast artillery station, and is a no less lovely spot now than when our grandparents went there on their wedding journeys, stopping at the old Hygia Hotel, long since gone the way of old hotels, the huge Chamberlain Hotel, however, remains apparently unchanged, and is today as spacious, comfortable and homelike as when our fathers and mothers, or perhaps we ourselves, Stopped there years ago, the Chamberlain, indeed, seems to have the gift of perennial youth. I remember a ball which was given there in honor of Admiral Sampson and the officers of his fleet. After the Spanish War, the ballroom was so full of naval and military uniforms that I in my somber civilian clothing felt one and lonely. Most of the evening I passed in modest retirement, looking out upon the brilliant scene from behind a potted palm, and yet, when my companion and I now in our dotage recently visited the Chamberlain, there stood the same potted palm in the same place, or if it was not the same, it was one exactly like it, the Chamberlain is of course a great headquarters for army and navy people, and we observed, moreover, that honeymooning couples continued to infest it for Fortress Monroe has long ranked with Washington and Niagara Falls as a scene to be visited upon the wedding journey, there they all were, as of old, The young husband scowling behind his newspaper and pretending to read and not to be thinking of his pretty little wife across the breakfast table, the fat blonde bride being continually photographed by her adoring mate now leaning against a pile on the pier, now seated on a wall, with her feet crossed, now standing under a live oak within the fortress, also there was the inevitable young pair who simply couldn't keep their hands off from each other, we came upon them constantly in the sun parlor, where she would be seated on the arm of his chair running her hand through his hair, wandering in the eventide along the shore, with arms about each other, or going into meals, she leading him down the long corridor by his ickle finger. I recall that it was as we were going back to Norfolk from old Point Comfort, having dinner on a most excellent large steamer, running to Norfolk and Cape Charles, that my companion remarked to me, out of a clear sky, that he had made up his mind, once for all, that, come what might, he would never, never, never get married, remember never, chapter XXV Colonel Taylor and General Lee forth from its scabbard hall in vain bright flashed the sword of Lee, T shrouded now in its sheath again, it sleeps the sleep of our noble slain, defeated, yet without a stain, proudly and peacefully, Abram J. Ryan, though I had often heard, before going into the south, of the devotion of that section to the memory of General Robert E. Lee, I never fully realized the extent of that devotion until I began to become a little bit acquainted with Virginia, I remember being struck, while in Norfolk, with the fact that portraits of General Lee were to be seen in many offices and homes, much as one might expect, at the present time, to find portraits of Schaufre and Nivalie in the homes of France, or of Hague in the homes of Britain. It is not enough to say that the memory of Lee is to the south like that of Napoleon I to France, for it is more. The feeling of France for Napoleon is one of admiration, of delight in a national military genius, of hero worship, but there is not intermingled with it the quality of pure affection which fully justifies the use of the word love, in characterizing the feeling of the South for its great military leader the man of whom Lord Wolseley said, he was a being apart and superior to all others in every way, a man with whom none I ever knew, and very few of whom I ever read are worthy to be compared a man who was cast in a grander mold and made of finer metal than all other men, nor is this love surprising, for whereas Napoleon was a self-seeking man, and one whose personal character was not altogether admirable in other respects, and whereas he could hardly be said to typify France's ideal of everything a gentleman should be, Lee sought nothing for himself, was a man of great nobility of character, and was in perfection a Virginia gentleman, at the end, moreover, where Napoleon's defeat was that of an aspirant to conquest, glory and empire, Lee's defeat was that of a cause, and the cause was regarded in the entire South as almost holy, so that, in defeat, the South felt itself martyred, and came to a look upon its great general with a love and veneration unequaled in history, and much more resembling the feeling of France for the canonized Joan of Arc, than for the ambitious Corsican. When, therefore, my companion and I heard, while in Norfolk, that Colonel Walter H. Taylor, President of the Marine Bank of that city, had served through the Civil War on General Lee's staff. We naturally became very anxious to meet him, and I am glad to say that Colonel Taylor, though at the time indisposed and confined to his home, was so kind as to receive us. He was seated in a large chair in his library, on the second floor of his residence, a pleasant old-fashioned brick house at the corner of York and Yarmouth streets, a slender man, not very tall, I judged though I did not see him standing, not very strong at the moment, but with nothing of the decrepitude of old age about him, for all his seventy-seven years, upon the contrary he was, in appearance and manner, delightfully alert, with the sort of alertness which lends to some men and women, regardless of their years, a suggestion of perpetual youthfulness, such alertness, in those who have lived a long time, is most often the result of persistent intellectual activity. And the sign of it is usually to be read in the eyes. Colonel Taylor's keen, dark, observant, yet kindly eyes were perhaps his finest feature, though, indeed, all his features were fine, and his head, with its well trimmed white hair and mustache, was one of great distinction. Mrs. Taylor, of whom we had previously been warned to beware, because she had not yet forgiven the Yankees for their sins, was also present, a beautiful old lady of unquenchable spirit, in whose manner, though she received us with politeness, we detected lurking danger, and why not, do not women remember some things longer than men remember them, do not the sweethearts who stayed at home remember the continual dull dread they suffered while the men they loved faced danger, whereas the absent lovers were at least in part compensated for the risks they ran, by the continual sense of high adventure and achievement, Mrs. Taylor was Miss Elizabeth Selden Saunders, daughter of Captain John L. Saunders of Virginia, who died in 1860, in the service of his country, a commander in the United States Navy, when the war broke out Miss Saunders, wishing to serve the Confederate government, became a clerk in the Surgeon General's office, at Richmond, and there she remained while Colonel Taylor, whose training at the Virginia Military Institute, coupled with his native ability, made him valuable as an officer, followed the fortunes of General Lee, part of the time as the General's aide-de-camp and the rest of the time as Adjutant General and Chief of Staff of the Army of Northern Virginia, in which capacities he was present at all general engagements of the Army, under Lee, on April 2, 1865, when Lee's gallant but fast-dwindling army, short of supplies, and so reduced in numbers as to be no longer able to stand against the powerful forces of Grant, was evacuating its lines at Petersburg, when it was evident that the capital of the Confederacy was about to fall and the orders for retreat had been dispatched by Colonel Taylor. In his capacity as adjutant then the colonel went to his commander and asked for leave of absence overnight. For the purpose of going to a Richmond and being married, he tells the story in his exceedingly interesting and valuable book, General Lee's Campaigns in Virginia, at the close of the day's work, when all was in readiness for the evacuation of our lines under cover of the darkness of night. I asked permission of General Lee to ride over to Richmond and to rejoin him early the next morning, telling him that my mother and sisters were in Richmond and that I would like to say goodbye to them, and that my sweetheart was there, and we had arranged, if practicable, to be married that night. He expressed some surprise at my entertaining such a purpose at that time, but when I explained to him that the home of my bride-elect was in the enemy's lines that she was alone in Richmond and employed in one of the departments of the government, and wished to follow the fortunes of the Confederacy should our lines be reestablished farther south. He promptly gave his assent to my plans. I galloped to the railroad station, then at Dunlop's, on the north side of the river, where I found a locomotive and several cars, constituting the ambulance train, designed to carry to Richmond the last of the wounded of our army requiring hospital treatment. I asked the agent if he had another engine, when, pointing to a one rapidly receding in the direction of Richmond, he replied, yonder goes the only locomotive we have besides the one attached to this train, turning my horse over to the courier who accompanied me, with directions to join me in Richmond as soon as he could. I mounted the locomotive in waiting, directed the engineer to detach it from the cars and to proceed to overtake the engine ahead of us. It was what the sailors call a stern chase and a long one. We did not overtake the other locomotive until it had reached Falling Creek, about three-fourths of the distance. When I transferred to it and sent the other back to Petersburg, I reached Richmond without further incident, and soon after midnight I was married to Elizabeth Selden Saunders. As will be readily understood, the occasion was not one of great hilarity, though I was very happy, my eyes were the only dry ones in the company the people of Richmond were greatly excited and in despair in the contemplation of the abandonment of their beautiful city by our troops. General Lee had for so long a time thwarted the designs of his powerful adversaries for the capture of the city, and seemed so unfailing and resourceful in his efforts to hold them at bay, that the good people found it difficult to realize that he was compelled at last to give way. There was universal gloom and despair at the thought that at the next rising of the sun the detested Federal soldiers would take possession of the city and occupy its streets. The transportation companies were busily engaged in arranging for the removal of the public stores and of the archives of the government. A fire in the lower part of the city was fiercely raging, and added greatly to the excitement. Somewhere near four o'clock on the morning of the 3D of April I bade farewell to all my dear ones, and in company with my brother-in-law. Colonel John S. Saunders proceeded toward Mayo's Bridge, which we crossed to the south side of the James, in the lurid glare of the fire, and within the sound of several heavy explosions that we took to be the final scene in the career of the Confederate Navy, then disappearing in smoke on the James River, near rockets, before we departed from the Colonel's library, which we felt obliged to do much sooner than we wished to. Owing to the condition of his health, he called our attention to an oil portrait of his old commander, which occupied the place of honor above the mantelpiece, and asked his daughters to let us see his scrapbook, containing personal letters from General Lee, Jefferson Davis, and other distinguished men, as well as various war documents of unusual interest, we felt it a great privilege to handle these old letters and to read them, and the charm of them was the greater for the affection in which the general held Colonel Taylor, as evidenced by the tome in which he wrote, to us it was a wonderful evening and it still seems to me wonderful to think that I had met and talked with a man who issued Lee's orders, who rode forth with Lee when he went to meet Grant in conference at Appomattox, just before the surrender, who once slept under the same blanket with Lee, who knew Lee as well perhaps as one man can know another, and under conditions calculated to try men to the utmost, as adjutant, Colonel Taylor took an active part in arranging details of surrender and parole, He says, each officer and soldier was furnished for his protection from arrest or annoyance with a slip of paper containing his parole, signed by his commander and countersigned by an officer of the Federal Army. I signed these paroles for all members of the staff, and when my own case was reached I requested General Lee to sign mine, which I have retained to the present time, this document, with Colonel Taylor's name and title in his own handwriting, and the signature of General Lee. I am able to reproduce here through the courtesy of the Colonel's daughters, Mrs. William B. Baldwin and Miss Taylor, of Norfolk. It is the only parole which was signed personally by General Lee. On the back of the little slip, which is of about the size of a bank check, is the counter signature of George H. Sharp, Assistant Provost Marshal General, following his parole Colonel Taylor rode with General Lee to Richmond. The General seemed to be in a philosophical frame of mind, but thought much of the future. The subject of the surrender and its consequences was about exhausted. The colonel tells of one incident, on the roof General Lee stopped for the night near the residence of his brother, Mr. Carter Lee, in Powhatan County, and although importuned by his brother to pass the night under his roof, the general persisted in pitching his tent by the side of the road and going into camp as usual. This continued self-denial can only be explained upon the hypothesis that he desired to have his men know that he shared their privations to the very last. This was perfectly in character with Lee. Throughout the war, we learn from Colonel Taylor's book, the general used the army ration, and lived the army life. He would not take up his quarters in a house, because he wished to share the lot of his men, and also because he feared that, in the event of the house falling into the hands of the enemy, the very fact of its having been occupied by him might possibly cause its destruction. It was only during the last year of the war, when his health was somewhat impaired, that he consented sometimes to vary this rule, Lee's chivalrous nature is well shown forth in his famous general orders. Number 73, issued at Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, a few days before Gettysburg. After congratulating the troops on their good conduct, the general continued as follows: There have, however, been instances of forgetfulness on the part of some that they had in keeping the yet insullied reputation of the army and that the duties exacted of us by civilization and Christianity are not less obligatory in the country of the enemy than in our own. The commanding general considers that no greater disgrace could befall the army, and through it our whole people, than the perpetration of the barbarous outrages upon the unarmed and defenseless, and the wanton destruction of private property, that had marked the course of the enemy in our own country. Such proceedings not only degrade the perpetrators and all connected with them, but are subversive to the discipline and efficiency of the army, and destructive of the ends of our present movement. It must be remembered that we make war only upon armed men, and that we cannot take vengeance for the wrongs our people have suffered without lowering ourselves in the eyes of all whose abhorrence has been excited by the atrocities of our enemies, and offending against him to whom vengeance belongeth, without whose favor and support our efforts must all prove in vain, the commanding general. Therefore, earnestly exhorts the troops to abstain with most scrupulous care from a necessary or wanton injury to private property, and he enjoins upon all officers to arrest and bring to summary punishment all who shall in any way offend against the orders on this subject, are really, general, truly, a document to serve as a model for warriors of all future generations, albeit one showing an utter lack of culture. Said Charles Francis Adams, of Massachusetts, I doubt if a hostile force ever advanced into an enemy's country, or fell back from it in retreat, leaving behind it less cause of hate and bitterness than did the Army of Northern Virginia in that memorable campaign. After the war, Colonel Taylor and his wife settled in Norfolk, where, within a very short time, a United States grand jury indicted Jefferson Davis and General Lee for treason this, in the case of Lee, being in direct violation of the terms of surrender. When Grant learned of the shameful action of the grand jury he complained to Washington and caused the proceedings against Lee to be dropped. In Colonel Taylor's scrapbook I found a letter written by Lee before the indictment had been quashed, referring to the subject, Richmond, VA, June 17, 1865. My dear Colonel, I am very much obliged to you for your letter of the 13th. I had heard of the indictment by the grand jury at Norfolk, and made up my mind to let the authorities take their course. I have no wish to avoid any trial the government may order, and cannot flee. I hope others may be unmolested, and that you at least may be undisturbed. I am sorry to hear that our return soldiers cannot obtain employment. Tell them they must all set to a work, and if they cannot do what they prefer, do what they can. Virginia wants all their aid, all their support, and the presence of all her sons to sustain and recuperate her. They must therefore put themselves in a position to take part in her government and not be deterred by obstacles in their way. There is much to be done which they only can do. Very truly years, Lee, really, as time went on, and the more gaping wounds began to heal, Colonel Taylor's letters from the general took in many cases a lighter and happier tone. After some years, when four daughters had been born to Colonel and Mrs. Taylor, while yet they had no son, the general chaffed them gently on the subject, Give my congratulations to Mrs. Taylor. He wrote, Tell her I hope that when her fancy for girls is satisfied mine is exorbitant she will begin upon the boys. We must have somebody to work for them. One of the colonel's sons was present when I came upon this letter. And you see. He smiled. My father obeyed his old commander to the last. For the next baby was a boy. And the next. And the next. And the next. Until there were as many boys as girls in our family. Colonel Taylor died at his home in Norfolk. March 1st. 1916, and on the subsequent June 15th, was followed by his wife. His death leaves but three members of Lee's staff surviving, namely, Ref. Giles B. Cook, of Portsmouth, Virginia, Inspector General, Major Henry E. Young, of Charleston, South Carolina, Judge Advocate General, and Colonel T. N. Martelcott, of Richmond, Virginia, aide-de-camp. Of these officers only the first two surrendered with General Lee. Colonel Talcott having left the staff by promotion in 1863. Yes, two of them surrendered. But if we are to believe Charles Francis Adams we cannot say that Lee and his forces were actually vanquished. For as the Massachusetts soldier author put it, Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia never sustained defeat, finally succumbing to exhaustion. To the end they were not overthrown in fight. The heart of the South Chapter XXVI Raleigh and JOSEPH use Daniels Judge Crutchfield give D'Nothka in a nigger frown, Democket says you to hate M second rate, and Mr. Daniels, he call Raleigh his hometown. I wonder what can be the matter with D'Matawidu state, just as it is the fashion in the Middle West to speak jestingly of Kansas, it is the fashion in the South to treat lightly the state of North Carolina, and just as my companion and I long ago, on another voyage of discovery, were eager to get into Kansas and find out what that fabulous Commonwealth was really like so we became anxious as we heard the gossip about the old North State to enter it and form our own conclusions the great drawback to an attempt to see North Carolina however lies in the fact that North Carolina Island so to speak spread very thin it has no great solid central city occupying a place in its thoughts and its affairs corresponding to that occupied by Richmond in its relation to Virginia like Mississippi. It is a state of small towns and small cities. Its metropolis, Charlotte, had, by the 1910 census, less than 35.000 inhabitants, its seaport, Wilmington, a little more than 25.000, its capital, Raleigh, less than 20.000, its beautiful mountain resort, Asheville, fourth city in the state, less than 19.000. I hasten to add that the next census will undoubtedly show considerable growth in all these cities. In Raleigh I found everyone insistent on this point. The town is growing, it is a going place, a great deal of new building is in progress, and when you ask about the population, progressive citizens are prepared to do much better by their city than the census takers did. Some years ago, they talk 30,000 instead of 20 and they are ready with astonishing statistics about the number of students in the schools and colleges as compared with the total population of the city statistics showing that though Raleigh is not large she is progressive, which is quite true. I recollect that Judge Francis D. Winston, former lieutenant governor of the state, United States district attorney, and the most engaging raconteur in the Carolinas, contributed a story to a discussion of Raleigh's population, which occurred, one evening, at a dinner at the country club, A promoter, he said, was once trying to borrow money on a boom town. He went to a banker and showed him a map, not of what the town was, but of what he claimed it was going to be. Here, he said, is where the town hall will stand. In this lot will be the opera house. Over here we are going to have a beautiful park, and on this corner we are going to erect a tall granite office building. But, said the banker, coldly, we lend money only on the basis of population. That's all right returned the promoter measured by any known standard except an actual count we had a population of two hundred thousand i shall not attempt to point this tale more than to recommend it to the attention of the secretary of the chamber of commerce in every city in the united states raleigh is situated within seven miles of the exact center of north carolina the land on which the city stands was purchased by the state in seventeen ninety two from a man named joel lane whose former house still stands The town was then laid out in a one-mile square, with th.